Today we turn in God's Word to Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, and Acts 1, 6 through 11. We welcome those visiting with us this morning. We are taking a one-week break from our series in the Gospel of Matthew because we're recognizing today the ascension of Jesus, one of the most overlooked doctrines, and yet important doctrines, in the Bible. Ascension Day is 40 days after Easter, and that is this coming Thursday. So we're recognizing this this morning. Hear now God's word. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Brothers and sisters, the ascension of Jesus Christ is his coronation. As we think of the gospel, we not only think of Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection, but also in his ascension. His ascension is the testimony of Scripture to his full deity. Who is he? He is true God and true man. His ascension, kids, in some ways, is the incarnation backwards. As the Son of God left heaven and came to earth and became man and remains truly God and truly man, now, after he has accomplished his work of redemption, he ascends into heaven. His ascension reminds us that even though Jesus is physically absent right now on earth, He reigns in heaven as his spirit is creating an ever-expanding kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth. This is crucial for us, loved ones, especially if we feel perplexed today, if there are trials and tribulations and temptations and difficulties that we're facing, to remember the significance of the ascension of Jesus. First, let's look at what this itself means. When Jesus ascended, 
it wasn't just for himself, loved ones. He arose, ascended, and sits in glory as the husband of his bride, the church. And the Bible teaches us that he ascended not right after he rose, but 40 days later. So 40 days backwards from now, children, was about Easter Sunday. And in those 40 days, he appeared, didn't he, kids? To the women, to the disciples, to over 500 people at one time as eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But he didn't keep appearing to them, nor did he just disappear without an account. Isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't just say all of a sudden he was gone and we don't know what happened to him. It says that he himself went to the Mount of Olives. His disciples are there. This is a public event, just as public as his crucifixion, just as public as his resurrection. And here they are, a couple of miles from Jerusalem. In fulfillment of Zechariah, the prophet, Jesus, it says what? Blesses them. One writer says, do you remember the first words that God uttered after he created Adam and Eve in his image? The Lord blessed them. What did God say to Abram? I'm going to bless you, Abram, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And now here is Jesus who ushers in the new creation by his resurrection from the dead. And he performs a blessing. Imagine this as his disciples. The last thing that they hear from Jesus is this covenantal blessing. An amazing encouragement to them and to you as well. Here is Jesus lifting up his hands, the Bible says much like an Old Testament priest, or much like Moses himself when he blessed the people. In similar words to the priestly blessing in number six that we read about from Aaron, the Lord bless you and keep you, Jesus blesses his apostles, and he is our blessing today as well. As we come to worship, what is the last thing that we hear each Sunday? Do you see it in your bulletins, children? Sometimes it's easy to kind of just go through the motions or check out. We never want to do that. God is present with us by his word and spirit, and we leave the worship service hearing the benediction. That means a good word, a blessing from the Lord, that you don't leave this week going forth in your own strength, that you leave the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, with the blessing of God, that You leave hearing that grace and peace are yours in Jesus, that you have everything you need in Christ for whatever trial or sorrow or difficulty or temptation you may face. One person once told their pastor, they said, I'm disappointed in my spouse because my spouse is not meeting my every need. Hmm. What's wrong with that? Hmm. You and I can never meet anyone's every need. Not as a husband, not as a wife, not as a sibling, not as a friend. Only Christ. And these hands of blessing that Christ gives are not weak hands. They are hands of strength 
and power. He blesses them as he's carried up into heaven. Those simple words in one of the most amazing miracles the Lord ever did. He physically ascends. It's not a vision. It's not a hallucination. It's not a dream. And he didn't just, whoop, vanish. Much like Enoch and Elijah before him, Jesus is carried up, but much greater than Enoch and Elijah. Not with a chariot of fire, and not like those balloons kids. You remember when you go outside and you sometimes have a balloon that you got maybe from a fair, and you thought it was around your wrist, and it wasn't. And away it goes, and you watch it, and you think, where will it land? That was not this, and not, not a balloon. And he went up in a cloud, but not like a cloud you see outside today. Our daughter commented on the clouds on the way to church this morning. Beautiful cumulus clouds. But this is not a cloud like that. It's a visible, triumphant departure in glory. The cloud represents the presence power and glory of God, which is how the Lord has displayed his glory throughout the Bible, isn't it? Clouds are present. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, the glory of God. When Moses was in the rock and the Lord passed by. A cloud led Israel by day in the wilderness for 40 years and led them by night through a pillar of fire. The cloud of God The glory of God filled the tabernacle and then the temple. It moved over the east gate of Jerusalem. And it left Jerusalem. Do you remember that? In the book of Ezekiel, as we had a child named Ezekiel baptized today. The cloud itself came upon the people of God at Pentecost. And it was there when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why is this important? Because God's glory is present in the ministry of his son. This is telling you Jesus is no mere prophet. He is God in the flesh as our perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is divine. He's the savior. So where did he go? Have you wondered that? Visibly, physically ascending. Children, did he go to Pluto? I ask this because... This is beyond our comprehension. Was he the first space traveler? Is this a Star Trek thing? No. You can't measure this in terms of light years. What does the Bible say? He went to heaven. What is heaven? As one person says, the word heaven is used three different ways in the Bible. First, to talk of the sky above, the birds of heaven. That's one way. Second, the whole realm of sun, moon, stars, space. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Third, heaven is where God's throne dwells. It's not a place we can travel to. It's God's realm of power. One day the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We pray, our Father, who art in heaven. The place of God's authority and power. It's another sphere. We don't know where it is. 
Heaven, one person says, is where Jesus is. Jesus is where heaven is. Children, it's a real place. It's not imaginary. His ascension was from one place here to another there. His physical glorified body is really there right now in one place at one time. His human nature is not everywhere present, even as his divine nature is everywhere present. This was spoken of in the Old Testament. Jesus himself told the disciples, I will ascend. What does it mean? It means he's a seated Savior. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing? There's a lot of questions here. How did this happen? Where is he? What's he doing? What's Jesus doing right now? Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of God. It's a way of speaking of his kingly authority. He is right now ruling his church. He sat down there because he has ultimate power. He went from this present evil age, we heard in Galatians 1, the world we live in now, to the one to come. He went from this space-time world that we live in to the new creation inaugurated in the resurrection with its greater powers of glory and wonder. One day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. When earth and heaven will be one, the day of Christ's return, it will be a physical place. Loved ones, Christ is so glorious, all of creation cannot contain him. He's bigger than the world. Solomon said, the heavens cannot contain your glory, O God. The ascension, as Hebrews says, is when Jesus passed through the heavens, and what the disciples saw below, he went up in a cloud. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, describes from above. The same event, one from the perspective of earth, Daniel 7 from heaven. Happening hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, here's what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's the picture of what's going on here. All authority, all power. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He ascended to heaven. He took his place at God's right hand. He's seated there. He's reigning. What else is he doing? He's interceding for his people. It says that 
Jesus went there to sit down at the Father's right hand. That's an interesting picture. Why would he sit down, children? Now, why do you sit down? Sometimes mom and dad say, sit down. (laughs) Sit down, you're rocking the boat. Wasn't that a song? You sit down because you're tired or you're a little antsy or you're squirrely or mom and dad or uh, you're tired at the end of a long day at work and you, you sit down and you collapse into a chair. He's not tired, but his work is done. The priests of the Old Testament never sat down. Hebrews says, day and night they were standing. They were offering sacrifices. Why? Because salvation was not accomplished. Redemption was not fulfilled. So over and over again, the priests offer sacrifices. But now, loved ones, the Lamb of God has been slain. Redemption has been accomplished. He has done it all. It is finished. What glorious words those are when Jesus said them on the cross. The covenant of works that the kids were talking about in catechism this morning, that Adam broke, the law of God that was given to Moses, Christ fulfilled. He accomplished it. He took the penalty for our sins, bearing the curse for our sins in our place on the cross. It is finished. But as he's sitting, he's interceding. Meaning, yes, his redemption is finished, but he is continuing to pray for you. A remarkable reality is this. Sinners cannot be saved without the death of Christ. Believers cannot be saved without the life of Christ following it. Meaning, Hebrews 7, he saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. To intercede is to plead on behalf of another. We draw near to God through Christ, who is our prophet, who speaks the word of God to us, who is our priest, who is the sacrifice himself, dying for our sins, who is our king who rules with authority, who has absolute power. So you pray to one, God himself, and your requests cannot be refused as you come by faith, by the power of the Spirit, praying, not my will, but your will be done. Christ always lives. He always intercedes for you. There is not one Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. If you're a Christian today, it's because the Son presented your name to his Father, who is now your Father. All he had to do was raise his hands before the Father, and your name appeared. He's interceding for you. As he's doing so, he's answering all the accusations that come against us. What does that mean? He pleads his merits on your behalf before the throne of the justice of God. He's there as your defense attorney, so to speak. He's raising his hands in the courts of heaven as proof 
that the price of your guilt and mine, of your sins and mine, has been paid. Who is to condemn, Romans 8? You hear that and you think, my heart condemns me. There might be people in your life who harshly condemn you. Who is to condemn, Christian? Christ Jesus is he who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Satan's condemnation against you cannot stand because Christ paid your salvation in full. Even in your suffering, Paul says, you are more than a conqueror through Christ who loved you. This brings tremendous comfort, tremendous strength, and confidence to you, Christian. Christ was cut off from God so that you will never be cut off from God. He was condemned that you might be forgiven. He's interceding for you, and he's doing so in a compassionate way. Hebrews says, our high priest sympathizes with us in our weakness. He has been tempted in every way as you are tempted, yet without sin. You have confidence now to draw near to the throne of grace. His office as a priest is one of grace and compassion. Loved ones, this affection that Christ has for you, a sinner, as you are trusting in him, by, in him by faith, is deeper than any of us can comprehend. This compassion means your very sins move Christ to pity more than to anger as one who's in Christ, Thomas Goodwin. That is his sympathy for you. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So, dear Christian, don't let your sins remove you or think that it removes you from the love of God in Christ. It doesn't. He's interceding for you and praying for you. You know how encouraging it is when someone prays for you? When they say it and they mean it, they don't just say it. What a blessing that is. This last week, we had our denominational church meetings, and I had the privilege to preach on Wednesday night, and right before the church service, two pastors at the meeting and an elder came and said, let's meet to pray together before the service, to pray for the preaching of the word, which our elders and deacons do each Sunday here. When someone texts you and said, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, how can I pray for you? What a blessing that is. Jesus is doing that right now, presenting you to his Father in his righteousness as if you had never sinned. Your name is on his lips. He doesn't forget your name. We can forget names. He never forgets any one of the names of the sheep that he died for. You are blessed in Christ, Christian, forever and ever. Do you remember Stephen? Stephen is about to be executed. Acts 7. How did he stand there as he was about to be killed? Do you remember that? He endures this peacefully as he looks 
and sees the majesty of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Amazing. Christ is seated at the right hand, but for Stephen, Acts 7 says, he's standing. Why is that? One person brings this out. Stephen stood up for Jesus. Stephen held fast to his confession for Christ. Stephen did not deny Christ in the presence of men. And Jesus stands up for Stephen. So here is Stephen, about to be killed, getting a glimpse of the ascension of Christ. He's excited. He says, I see the glory of God. And he dies. He dies by faith in Christ who loved him. When he saw Jesus, what did he see? His advocate before the Father. And the Father sees the beauty of Jesus, and he sees you in Christ today. On earth, they were saying to Stephen, you're ugly, you're absolutely a failure, and we're going to kill you. That's what Stephen heard on earth. Jesus, his advocate in heaven, said, you're forgiven, you're beautiful in me, and I present you to the Father. Dear Christian, to the degree that you believe in Christ as your advocate and you are perfect in him by faith, one man says, the verdict of what people say and think about you here in this life is inconsequential. People won't be able to make you hate them. People won't be able to pull you down because you have the peace of God that passes all understanding, guarding your heart and your mind in Christ. Yes, they'll accuse you, but Christ doesn't. What does this mean? Jesus is your forerunner. The ascension means Jesus goes ahead of you to prepare a place for you. The Bible says he's getting it ready for you right now. What does that mean? Can we comprehend it? When you have a guest coming over, what do you do usually? They're going to stay for a few days. You might get fresh bed sheets. You might make sure the dog is clean so the dog doesn't slobber and smell. And You might help clean things up, right? Get it ready for them. Jesus is getting things ready in heaven. He goes there as a forerunner. He is the, the, the steadfast anchor of your soul. He's entered into the place behind the curtain. So Christ entering heaven is closely associated with you entering heaven. Think about what happens when your loved one dies. At our church meetings this last week, some pastors who had been with us in years prior had died. Some pastors and elders had had loved ones die. One pastor had a daughter die, very young. And maybe you've experienced this. When a loved one dies in Jesus, where do they go? They go to be with Jesus. Their soul leaves their body behind. And they follow Jesus into heavenly glory. And there is Jesus waiting to receive that loved one that he died for. I've prepared a place for you, he says, beyond your imagination. 
beyond what anything in this world can offer. And the Bible says already by faith you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ's flesh and brings together what is separated by a great distance, us and Christ, his physical body. And the glory of Christ in his session, his seated reign, filters to us his church. And we are, Ephesians 2, seated with him in the heavenly places. You have been raised with Christ. You have been given this promise in Revelation 3. The one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. This matters for you, loved ones, now and for eternity. Your future exaltation in Christ is a fact. It will be fully seen when Christ returns because he ascended. We will ascend because we are united with him by faith. Where does that lead you today? Secondly, how do we apply this? What's the response of the disciples? Do you see what the text says in Luke 24, 52? Their immediate response is to worship. A word that we can use so often. It means to kiss towards. Their affections go out to Christ. Mind, will, soul. In awe, it says, they're blessing God in the temple. Not with a mumbling, dry, boring worship. Sometimes the pain is so great, it's hard to speak. Sometimes in worship, the grief might be so great, it's hard to sing. Life is filled with sorrow. But I want you to see, loved ones, in the midst of your sorrow, they worship with great joy. Sorrow and joy are not incompatible. They go together in this fallen world. Overflowing, exceeding joy, something only the Holy Spirit can produce. They go, and they continue to worship God in the temple. The Gospel of Luke began with Simeon and Anna and others worshiping God in the temple. It ends with worshiping God in the temple. And you think, how can they be that joyful when Jesus has just left? Because, as one man says, they have finally gotten it. Their greatest fears and problems are gone. Their greatest hope and love is fulfilled. They know who he is. This is the Son of God who loved me and died for me and rose for me and ascended for me and is returning for me. They understand Jesus' mission. They understand that they are joining, as you and I are today, a heavenly host in the heavenly places that are worshiping God right now. It's as if the roof has been blown off this place. We are worshiping God today with myriads of angels, probably trillions of angels, kids. And all those in Christ who have died and gone before. We are worshiping in the heavenly places. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory 
and blessing. This worship, Acts says, goes to the nations. We are joining with God's people all around the globe today. Christianity and the gospel is from everywhere to everywhere. To every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That is part of why we love missions here. Because our God is a missionary God. Because we are here by God's grace as among the nations. We heard about the nations this week at church meetings. God is doing a mighty work in the Philippines, loved ones. And in Africa, the church is being built. Disciples are being made. Sinners are being converted. Worship is taking place. God is being glorified. That's what Jesus said would happen. Heavenly worship for the nations. And Holy Spirit-empowered witnessing. As they're looking up into heaven, they might have wondered, when is Jesus going to come back? Can you imagine being there that day? And then angels said, why are you standing looking? He's going to come in that same way. He's going to come visibly one day. And then it says they returned to Jerusalem. They trusted Christ. They obeyed Christ. Why did they go back to Jerusalem? Because in Luke 24, 49, Jesus gave them the promise of the Father. What's that? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The unity of the covenant of grace. One promise of covenant mercy made to Abraham, fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ's blood, and now that promise applied to us by the Spirit of God who is poured out so that as Jesus is physically absent from us right now, he is nearer to us than when he was on the earth. His Spirit is poured out. The Spirit that Paul says dwells in our hearts so that as the Spirit strengthens us. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. He is the prophet who sent you his spirit. He sent you the scriptures, the completed work of Christ's prophetic activity. And the Bible says he gives you gifts. The Old Testament in Psalm 68 speaks of an ascension looking forward it says, you ascended, and Paul takes that passage in Ephesians 4, applying it to Christ, it says, he ascended, and he gave gifts, Paul says. He gave you gifts to serve each other. Each one of you, by the Spirit, has been gifted by God, and you're a blessing to one another in the body of Christ here. So that when one is gone, we miss that one, the gifts that that one brings, which strengthen the body. Loved ones, you're a blessing to each other. You're a blessing to me. You encourage each other. The ascension of Jesus says he has equipped the saints for the work of the ministry, Acts 4, for building up the body of Christ. The gifts God has given to you are to build each other up to edify one another as we pray that the Holy Spirit would do what he has promised, bringing us to repent, giving us the gift of faith in Christ 
softening our hard hearts, and leading us to worship the Lord. The perfection of the union between Christ and his church is the goal of redemption. That's where we're headed. The perfection of glory. The day Christ returns, when our bodies will be raised and made like his. And even now, as we are filled with trials, remember this, dear Christian. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Isn't that true? If Christ was out there and you heard him praying, you would have no fear. McShane said, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for you right now at his Father's right hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, draw our hearts ever nearer to this glorious gospel. By your Spirit, strengthen us and help us to be a blessing to one another as we look forward and long for the day of Christ's return when he will come again in glory. May we be faithful by your Spirit and may we live by faith in Christ, the ascended and reigning and ruling Savior, the head of the church, the one in whose name we pray. Amen.